I'm your host, Demetria Wack. And I'm your host, Michael Wiafe. Today on PolicyWise. Instead of getting policymakers to listen to the youth voice, Michael Tubbs brought the youth voice directly to the table, actually the very front of the decision-making table. In 2016, the election of Michael Tubbs as mayor of Stockton made him the youngest mayor of any major city in American history at only 26 years old, as well as Stockton's first African-American mayor. As mayor, he was known for his dedication to education programs, crime reduction, and for leading the nation's first ever mayor-led guaranteed income pilot. Under his leadership, Stockton was named an All-American City in 2017 and 18, and named second most fiscally healthy city in California. As well, Stockton also led the state in decline of officer-involved shootings in 2019 and saw a 40% drop in homicides in 2018 and 2019 under his leadership. Currently, Michael Tubbs serves as a statewide appointee of Governor Gavin Newsom on the Commission for Police Officer and Standards Training and as a member of the National Police Foundation's Council on Policing Reforms in Race. Today, we're extremely excited uh, to talk to Michael Tubbs about his life in politics, uh, his thoughts for the future, and of course, the youth voice. Uh, as we know, this intro is just scratching the surface. And as we know, all Michaels are legends. Uh, I know that there's a lot more uh, to the story uh, of, of how you got to where you are. Can you please add anything else? Perhaps talk about who you were before your election to mayor and how you wound up in politics uh, and getting involved in the first place? Yeah, born and raised in Stockman. Um, and in high school, I mean, a lot of the issues in Stockton are personal. Um, so in terms of poverty, my mom, she had me as a teenager, so we were poor. My father was still incarcerated, has been incarcerated for 27 of the 30 years I've been alive. Um, lived on the south part of the city, et cetera. So a lot of things we worked on in Stockton came not just from what I studied at Stanford, but from what I lived um, as a young person. And a lot of my mentors um, in Stockton, uh, folks I look up to, folks who taught me how to lead and how to govern and what needs to be done, um, were folks I met when I was a child in high school. When I was a high schooler, I was one of those um, student government kids, right? I don't think, I wouldn't say student government nerd, I was a little bit cool, or cooler at least than the rest of them. But I was always involved <laughs> in like student government stuff. Um, I was student body president. I was, um, I wrote for the local newspaper. I was chairman of the Youth Advisory Commission, which was like the teen city council. And that was where I learned about city government because I was literally making agendas. I literally had to learn Robert Rules of Order. I literally um, would go to council meetings and challenge the mayor and the council on the issues affecting young people. And I mean, it was interesting because I took it so seriously back then. I had no idea I would be married. That was not my goal. But looking back at it now, I realized that even as a young person, all those things were preparation for what I'm doing now and that the skills are the same, are the same. Like running a meeting is running a meeting. The scale is different, but it's really, I was happy. I'm glad at a young age, I learned the fundamentals. So then when it became time to govern, I was able to apply things I had learned as a student organizer in college, where I organized a, a police brutality protest before the big game between Stanford and Cal in 2011, because um, some young people had been, um, beating up at Cal by, by student police or um, meeting my wife while planning a protest around the false execution of Troy Davis or um, my first month in college um, leading the campaign to get the Palo Alto police chief fired. Like all those things were really, I think, clues as to what I would be doing later. But I had no idea. I just knew I was had a lot of energy, had a lot of passion. There was a lot of stuff that was wrong that, that needed to be fixed. 
Awesome. Well, you're you're talking to the right people. Um, yeah, I, yeah. I think he added both of us as student government nerds. I was like, oh no. <laughs> <laughs> we're we're both uh in some way shape or form not not some way shape or form we're both former student student body presidents uh of different types so it to to, to hear you say that is is a kind of a nod in our direction just a little bit um (laughs) before we get started into your your initiatives as mayor and some of what you were able to accomplish you mentioned mentorship and, and the importance of that and and on this podcast we've heard that multiple times. Uh, in fact, I'd say almost from every single guest. Can you can you tell us a little bit about how mentorship played into your leadership development and, and maybe helped to get you to where you are? Yeah, my best mentors weren't people that said, I'm your mentor. Um, they're people who I watched and learned a lot from. So yeah, I think defining mentoring that way kind of expands the possibility of who's a mentor, right? So one of my biggest political mentors isn't a politician. Her name is Mary Wright Elderman. She is the founder of the Children's Defense Fund. She spent her whole life fighting poverty. And seeing the way she's been able to stay true to values, to be pragmatic, to have a policy mind, and to push an agenda and conversation forward is incredibly inspiring to me. Um, and she, I've just learned so much from watching her. And now she's for, I formally call her my mentor, but... She was my mentor before she even knew she was my mentor because I just watched how she moved and how she led. I thought that was very powerful. Um, yeah, I think that in high school, I, like when I was applying for college, I was lucky to meet a woman named Karen Lawrence. And Carolyn was a college admissions consultant. So she made $10,000, dollars $30,000 helping kids with privilege apply for college. And she worked with me for free and helped me build my college list, helped me... She edited my college essay. She told me to change my email from love to b-ball 24-7 to my name. Um, saying, you know, because as a 17-year-old, I had no idea that love to b-ball was a professional email. I was like, I, I love to play basketball. What's the issue? Like, <laughs> accept me for who I am. Um, but she was a great mentor in terms of college admissions process. I think that um, there's several mentors I met while accounts person and while as mayor in terms of how they operate as husbands and partners and, and um and just community leaders and parents um, that, that that were mentors to me. So I have hella mentors, um, but, but but oftentimes those mentors are folks, I like the way they do this, or I like the way this person parents, or I like the way the type of partner this person is, or I like the way this person leads and governs, or I like the way, and I think it's always being teachable, like understanding that you can have all the talent and all the ambition, but you don't have all the experience. It doesn't mean you shouldn't do things, but it means you have to actively compensate for your weaknesses and when your weaknesses when you're young is you don't have the experience that's just it so that doesn't mean you don't do anything that doesn't mean you can't do anything that just means you find folks with experience and kind of cheat the system a little bit and learn from all their mistakes so you don't make them like learn all their game learn all their codes so then you're in a better position to move and maneuver where you are yeah wow thank you i i feel like it's a really relatable definition of mentorship especially for you know so many so many i think you know, youth can relate to the idea that there's a lot of people who you can look to who have like certain qualities that you think are great. But at the same time, you might not have someone that's like directly like, oh, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to teach you exactly how to do everything you want to do. Well, um, and, I, and I'll say just as a, 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 a person now who a, a lot of people are like, can you mentor me? Can you, like, it's, it's too much. Like, like if you had to text me and ask me because I mentor you, that, that suggests something, right? Like, let's just, let's just do this life journey together. I, I, I think just even putting that, at least for me, it feels like a lot of pressure 
I'm like, I got a kid. I got another kid on the way. Like, I, I just follow on for the ride and ask questions. Let's do that. You call it what you want to. But this idea of like, we're going to talk every month for four hours, it stresses me out. Yeah. But you can wow. follow me on Twitter. I, I, I share all my gems on Twitter. <laughs> oh, that's good to know. And if the listeners, what, yeah, what's your what's your Twitter at? So all the listeners it's can at Michael D Tubbs at uh, Bball for Life. No, just kidding. No, <laughs> <laughs> no, that's perfect. Um, that was cool. And and honestly, it reminded me like a lot. Oh, sorry if that was the noise in the background. Um, it reminded me a lot of like you know, I think about like a like a younger sibling looking at like mentors and learning from people's mistakes and realizing that they're not going to make all the same mistakes as like the older siblings. And um, yeah. I don't know. It's a really interesting um and cool perspective. And before we go more into that, I do want to talk about kind of you know your position as mayor. And um, I'm hoping maybe you could just sort of paint a picture of Stockton for our listeners who might not know the area as well. And then particularly like the areas of Stockton that you were like, this is why I need to run. Uh, and these yeah, are the things well, I want to change. Stockton, California is a city of 315,000 people. Um, and for context, it's just as big as St. Louis, um, bigger than Newark, New Jersey. Um, same size as Cincinnati, Ohio. It's like a real city. <laughs> and it's the most diverse city in the country. But the most diverse doesn't mean the most progressive. And the most diverse <laughs> doesn't mean the most democratic. It just means there happens to be a lot of people from different parts of the world who live in Stockton, right? Um, Stockton politically is a community that's like purple, like for historically, at least, especially in local government, those to the right, Republicans, have really kind of held the mayorship, held the city council seats, held the board of supervisors seats. While the more partisan races, whether it's Congress, um, state, senate, et cetera, usually go to Dems. But generally, not all the time, but generally it's like folks who are very moderate. Um, it is the 12th largest city in California. It's in like the Central Valley. So you might think Stockton, like farms. No, it's like extremely, like it's a very urban city. It's a, it's a city with, with, with not rural problems, but urban problems, right? Uh, but it's also home. It's a beautiful place with amazing people, the best food you will find, particularly ethnic food, and a place with just a really rich history. And the parts of Stockton sort of, I, well, as mayor, you focus on the whole city, but understand that you're one person it just seemed wise to me to focus on the parts of the city which needed the most focus, right? Like if resources scares, if attention is scarce, we should focus on where a lot of our issues are. If we solve them there, then the rest of the city is better off for it. But if I'm just like focus on your dog park, I don't know, I'm, sure, I'm not sure still how that moves the needle for, for, the, for the entire city, although dog parks are, are, are important, just not more important than like poverty or more important than educational attainment are more important than a balanced budget, are more important than like climate justice and making sure people have access to clean air and clean water. Um, so the community sort of, I, that I before I was mayor, I was on city council. I represent the neighborhood I grew up in. I represent district six, but between the ages of 22 and 26. That district is like every other South part of, like I don't, it's really weird in this country. I can't think of any South part of any city that's the nicest part or even known as a nice part. Like, think of South anywhere. Like, you, 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 it's always like a stigma associated with South sides, right? So that, that was the area I focused on. But in Stockton, interestingly, because of developmental patterns, 
Every single council district had a count uh, a, a pocket of poverty, which concentrated a lot of our issues with crime and violence, which concentrated a lot of our issues with lack of opportunity. So I tried to kind of focus on the south part of the city because I was 100,000 to 300,000 people, but also on the pockets of poverty throughout the city because it, 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 it's the same folks. In, in many ways, folks in the south side had better outcomes than folks who lived in the pockets of poverty in the most affluent parts of the city. Wow. Okay, thank you for that, because I, I think that that helped folks like me who've never been to Stockton uh, get to get to know a, a really good part of the city, but also to to kind of look further into what it's like to kind of have a bird's eye view on the city and know where you want to focus your time, energy, effort, policy initiatives. So now we're going to pivot a little bit and ask about the universal basic income. So first, can you tell us what it is? Can you tell us what happened in Stockton? What's happening now? What are you hoping will happen next? And, and this is... Uh, a really important policy we'd love for you to go uh, and dive into. Yeah, yeah. So guaranteed income is this, is this, is this regular uh, reoccurring cash payments, no strings attached to a certain suspect, certain subset of folks. So if it's universal, it means everyone, that's universal basic income. If it's not quite everyone, it's guaranteed income, et cetera. I learned about it from studying Dr. King, actually, again, in college. I have no idea I'd be doing this work, but in college, I studied Dr. King. He read, wrote, where do we go from here? And he said, I am now convinced the most simplest way and most effective way is the most direct. A guaranteed income paid to the national median income because we can't solve for poverty by solving for other things that may be tangentially related to poverty, but aren't actually poverty, which is the absence of cash, which is the lack of cash. Given that poverty was such a huge issue in Stockton, I said, you know what, we have to do something about poverty. For context, we announced we were doing our guaranteed income program in October 2017. That was a month before Andrew Yang even announced he was running for president. So we were talking about this and doing this before other folks were even running on it, right? Um, and I think that context is important because it shows sort of just the political dynamic. Like it was just like no one was doing it. <laughs> it was just so new. No one was talking about it. So what we did in Stockton, we found 125 families. And what we did is we wanted to make it as inclusive as possible. So we made the criterion one where 75% of the city qualified. And our criterion was you had to live at or below the city's median income level of 46,000, which means there's those in a program who made more than 46,000 and those in a program who made less than 46,000, but they all lived in neighborhoods where the median income of all the houses in the area were $46,000. And we gave them $500 a month for two years. 2019 and 2020, um, and we were testing really for three questions. We had outside researchers evaluate the program. The three questions were sort of impact on income volatility, which is this notion of, of how so many people, particularly one in two Americans, can afford one $500 emergency. So just like how does guaranteed income help deal with cash and income volatility? The second thing was around impacts on health, mental health, physical health, et cetera. And the third thing was... Um, how is the money spent? Like how, how, how are folks spending the money? And what we found was that, a, and also labor market impact. So what we found, three really top line findings. Number one, the guaranteed income actually allowed, made people more likely to find full-time employment. Meaning that something as small as $500 a month freed people up with the time to plan, to take time off work, to interview. To, to buy interview clothes, et cetera. And those who received a guaranteed income were two times more likely to transition from part-time to full-time employment than those in the control group that did not receive a guaranteed income. And that's so important because so many people 
would say, well, people are just going to stop working. People are just going to, it's, it's a lie. Okay. Yeah, it's, 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 this is not data. It may be true to someone's ideology. It may be true to some, some people's biases, but according to like the real world data, it's just not true. This is not what happens. Um, the second sort of big finding we found was around health and that those who received the guaranteed income and those in the control group who didn't receive the guaranteed income before receiving, when they were both, no one was getting guaranteed income, they both had elevated levels of depression on the Kessler scale. Meaning they were both like, if you went to a doctor, they'd be like mildly to moderately depressed. And after one year, those who received the guaranteed income, stress levels, depression levels decreased to normal levels, while those who didn't receive a guaranteed income increased their depression levels slightly. And the delta between where those who received the guaranteed income started and finished after just one year was comparable to what we see with clinical trials of Prozac in terms of sort of the impact on mental health. And I think that's just so important because in this health pandemic where we're talking about mental health, we have to also understand that sometimes the chemical imbalances are triggered by environmental factors like poverty, like economic insecurity, like being stressed about how I'm going to pay for not luxuries, not yachts. Not two houses, hell, for one house, like right? And I think that gets lost in translation. And the third um, sort of finding was this notion that folks, the money helped people deal with not having money, right? So like when emergencies happened, when things were changing, having an extra 500 bucks guaranteed allowed people to better weather those storms. And this was all pre-COVID. So next year we're releasing the data um, during COVID, and I'm sure those stri- findings are going to be even more striking because now you have folks who who was able to stay at home and who wasn't. It's probably based on who was able to take time, like risk losing money, right? Like who was able to weather being laid off and who wasn't? Who was able to keep on track with paying credit card bills and rent and et cetera and who wasn't? I mean, I think we all know the answer. Those who probably had the extra $500 did better during a pandemic than those who didn't have $500. And I think those fines are going to be important because the argument I've been making lately is that a guaranteed income is part of an economic resilience strategy. A guaranteed income is part of how do we weather the storm because we live in a time of pandemics. It's not just these things that happen once every decade. Every quarter, every year at some part of the country, there's an earthquake, there's a flood, there's a wildfire, there's a health pandemic, and all those things impact the most vulnerable the most poor disproportionately it's not because they're not like not because the storm is saying i want to target poor people it's because poverty and economic insecurity makes it very difficult to rebound to come back and we see it now with with COVID 19 when those who were billionaires before are a hundred times billions dollars richer while those who were poor before are infinitely poor they're going to be even poorer once these eviction moratoriums expire. They have to start paying back the rent they haven't had to pay or the mortgage they haven't had to pay um, for, for, for the last two years. You were preaching to the choir. <laughs> thank you. Thank you for, for really laying that down for us. Um, I, I mentioned earlier, uh, for the listeners I mentioned before we started, um, that some of my focus in my study is, is poverty and inequality. Um, this, this semester, I've, I've been able to, to teach a class called Wealth and Poverty. Ooh, um, teacher. And, yeah, j- just a little bit. I wouldn't. I wouldn't call myself a professor. Uh, <laughs> and, and I've. I've actually had the fact of, of working with really some fantastic students, um, but but also having a, a great professor to to walk us through it. 
Um, and really, we talked about the weakness of the social safety net and how in times of economic downturn, the social safety net really just crumbles. Um, mm. And so it sounds like universal basic income, when you brought up economic resiliency, would kind of be a way to, to put a floor onto the already extremely weak social safety net um, and make it more of a floor, not a, not a net, <laughs> which some people uh, eventually fall through. Um, and, and so uh, it, within the past few months, kind of engaging with a lot of students around these topics, um, there's been a lot of pushback in terms of what are, you know, not that we're trying to push anything, but pushback in terms of whenever we propose different policies for people to think of, or, you know, here are some ways to address economic inequality or poverty, and and here are some ways to support people. Whenever universal basic income comes up, um, you you can just expect that there's going to be an argument in the room. So <laughs> as somebody who who had to push this uh, and worked with it, what what are some of the naysayers saying? And what do you say back to them? Yeah, I mean, they, they, they say things that are more aligned with a particular worldview. And I think part of what underlines it, what is a, my generous assessment of what underlines it, is this notion that we live in an economy where work is, is rewarded with wages that, that pay for what you need to live. That's just not the world we live in. If we lived in that world, that would be so amazing. I'd be the happiest person alive. We, we, we don't. We live in a world where actually those who work the hardest make the least, where folks are working two jobs, folks are doing these called essential workers and are told you have to work in a pandemic without health coverage. You have to work in a pandemic without paid time off, but you're essential. You have to work and still don't make enough to pay their bill. Like It's just so bizarre. So I think that's part of it. So then you hear this notion that people are going, or, or the first one is that dignity of work like people need work for dignity and i think just that premise alone explains the issues we have because we people go to work in undignified conditions every day i would argue that the work conditions we put people in are incredibly dehumanizing and are inherently undignified in terms of not being able to collectively organize not being able to make wages that pay for anything working crazy hours retail workers don't know their damn schedule for a week like it, it's it's actually bizarre and I think we have to begin to attach dignity to humanity first and saying, because you are a human being inherently, no matter what you work, no matter what you produce, just for being a living, breathing human, you have dignity. And therefore, we treat you in that way, whether it's to an income floor. So if you can't work for whatever reason, or you choose to stay home and take care of your kids, or you have a disability, or you're differently able, you can't work, or you want to devote yourself to artistic pursuits and creativity you at least have a floor. So you're not living in abject poverty, which we know is, according to the higher Maslow's hierarchy, it, it's just like a basic thing you need to self-actualize, right? So that's one argument. The second argument is that um, people aren't going to work. And I'm like, who do you know can live off $500 a month? What are you talking about? There's no one who's going to stop working for even $1,000 a month. Because the thing is, people want to contribute. People want to be useful. People want to have, people feel a strong need of giving something and doing something. And we see it all the time. So part of a guaranteed income is allowing people the agency and what Gene Sperling calls the economic dignity of deciding what work to choose and what work not to choose. It's saying, no, I don't have to work in this exploitative factory because I at least have an income floor. It's saying, you know, I can take time off work to volunteer and coach Little League. I can take time off work to spend more time with my kids. 
or I could pay for childcare so I can so I can go back to work, etc. Um, the third argument we have is that folks are going to spend their money on drugs and, and, and alcohol, and no one's taking me up on this offer. But I would love to compare the spending results of my small one million dollar experiment of philanthropic dollars in Stockton and how that money was spent compared to the two trillion dollars. And tax cuts we gave to my rich friends. Well, some, all of them my friends, but some of my friends happen to be rich and others. How was that money spent? And I'm telling you now, before COVID, I would get invited to all these rich people parties. Somebody spent a lot of money on, on alcohol. There was open bars. There was expensive wines. That stuff's not cheap. And, and, and I think a lot of this, though, is, is rooted in sort of racism. A lot of it is rooted in these tropes we have about those who struggle. And a lot of it's, frankly, rooted in white supremacy. And the issue is that we think that that those who have more have been ordained by that God somehow blessed them uh, with 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 all this money because there's something special about them. And those who don't have money is because God has decided that they don't need money, or God has decided that they're not worthy of money, or that or they're not smart, or they don't work hard. And that is literally not true. That what we see in terms of income disparities, what we see in terms of wealth disparities are the results of a lot of hard work, but a lot of hard work of policymakers to create a system and create some rules that allow wealth for some and, and economic insecurity for most. Um, and I think that's why the, a guaranteed income is so important and such a powerful tool because that can be, it's not the end all be all, right? It's not a magic bullet that's going to solve every issue, but again, it provides an income floor. And how you said it was brilliant. Like nets have holes so people can slip through nets. Or people get their foot caught in the net. A floor, a foundation <laughs> is much more preferable. And a guaranteed income, I'm, I'm actually going to steal this, Michael. So when you hear me say this one day, you can say, I stole it uh, from say you. I'm, I'm going to say a basic income moves our safety net into a floor. And that I might tweet it after this. Um, I, I, that's brilliant. So thank you for you that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, give me at me. I'm, 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 yeah, send me your. I'll add you. That, that, that's really like that analogy is brilliant. I think it's what I would resonate with people. All right, I just visual. put it in the chat. I appreciate it. All right, I'm gonna do it right now. I'm listening still. I'm gonna do it right now. <laughs> um, no, I mean you just hit on so many. I think critical points that I think many people our age are thinking about and like just it's just like amazing to to hear someone um who is in like who's been in positions who's going into positions who's in positions now with the same kind of thoughts and feelings and it's just really inspiring um and I think when it comes to like what you were talking about earlier as far as these people being essential workers and and kind of just like the value the price value that we put on certain types of work in a in a in a world in which you people are actually getting paid for the work that they were doing, I I totally feel you in the sense that it might actually work. But we're having people who are working so hard, and I think it relates way back to like you can get really back even to like just like early feminist stuff about like mm. care work and going into that route. And it's kind of like the same story over and over again, where you're missing this human dignity that's being only applied to certain sectors, and slowly and steadily these what like that's getting recognized but like i think right now is like a huge push to make that happen for like everyone and i think the universal basic income is a really interesting approach to that um not to get like too nerdy into the weeds but uh when it comes to universal basic income you know like that's i've heard like that proposal as being kind of like okay cool we have this floor 
Um, so I kind of have like a two part question is what makes, you know, that specific amount, a, like an acceptable floor um, versus like a greater amount. And I'm sure this has to do with as far as like work incentives and things like that and also availability of money. Um, but also, how do you think this compares to uh, like universal services? So like uh, like free healthcare, free education, free all that and that. And, and why do you think this is a better route? Yeah, no, no, great questions. Um, I think $500 is the bare minimum. I think it's the least, right? Like Dr. King was calling for something paid at the national median income. He was talking about, and keeping up with inflation. So he was talking about $40,000, $45,000 for every, like he wasn't playing around. So I think that there's a number between 500 and national median that we could get to, but we did 500 because that's how much the, in terms of getting to a hundred people, which would make our research sort of more um, scalable, I mean, applicable. We had to think about sort of, and we wanted it to be longer than a year. And we figured that $500 because one in two Americans can afford one $500 emergency that we'll be able to see some impacts. But I would argue that better is better, more is better. So whether it's a thousand, we see 1400 with stimulus checks, we see Many of the mayors and the mayors for guaranteed income network I started are doing two thousand dollars. It's like I think there's a number, um, and and five hundred dollars is the absolute floor, and we should do more um, politically if we can. To your second question, what I'm I I I never understood the saying, and people would tell me this all the time: you want to have your cake and eat it too. But what would be the point of having cake? if I'm not going to eat it. Like, I, I just do not understand. Um, so <laughs> to your question, I definitely think, uh, it doesn't, I'm like, yeah, I want my cake and I want to eat it. Yes. <laughs> and can I get seconds? But I think to your, to your question, it really is um, guaranteed income has to intersect with other things, right? Like, but I think a guaranteed income makes all those other programs even more effective. Like, I think a guaranteed income, since it increases health outcomes, will make universal health coverage actually cheaper because we have less people with sort of preventable um, ailments. People will be healthier generally, right? I think a guaranteed income pairs perfectly with conversations around sort of um, free public college because folks won't have to use a guaranteed income money to pay off college debt. They can use the money to pay off the million other bills they have, right? So I think guaranteed income has to, and that's why I've been very clear from the beginning, I'm not personally in favor or speak very strongly against any proposal that will seek to push out other important services, but also seek to gut the imperfect, but at least existing social safety net, right? Like I'm not in favor of anything that would say, let's take away housing vouchers, let's take away food vouchers for those who need it to give everyone something, right? If someone needs housing vouchers and I don't, why should we take away what they need to give me something I don't really need? And actually, they're in a relatively worse position than compared to me than they were before. If they have a housing voucher, I don't have a housing voucher. You take away their voucher, you give us both $1,000. Their $1,000 going to go to pay for some of that voucher, so they have less. They have like $250. And I have $1,000 more. It, it's, it's, Yeah. So let me get off yeah. my, my high horse, but no, I appreciate no. the question. No, this is, no, this is, this is really great. Cause I, I think a lot of times when people hear 
universal basic income. There's so many different definitions of what this could possibly look like. And for some, it's a matter of like that being the like end all be all. Um, but I, I love the way that you talked about it. it and I, yeah, it's, a, it's about the floor. It's about being able to walk on the floor and dance on the floor. <laughs> that's cool. Yeah, right? um, <laughs> that's awesome. Um, okay. Okay. Uh, Michael, do you want to go ahead and do the next question? Absolutely. Uh, thanks, Demi. Uh, I'm curious if, if you wouldn't mind sharing with us what might next steps look like for you and what might it look like for Stockton? Are you asking me if I'm running for something? Is that the question? That wasn't the specific question. If that's how you interpreted no, no, no. it, then no, no, that's what I would ask. No, I'm and, and at least for the next couple of years, I don't see myself running running for anything. Um, but I do see myself continuing to use all tools available. Um, whether it's sort of mayors for guaranteed income, it started with one mayor. Now we have fifty mayors across this country um, doing guaranteed income. We have the city of Los Angeles using twenty four million dollars in public dollars to do a two thousand dollars a month to a thousand families. So, so proud of the work we've, we've led and we, we're doing in partnership with our mayors. Um, Compton, Oakland, Long Beach. I just got a tweet from the mayor of Mountain View. Like we're really, um, we're really moving and pushing ahead. So I'll be doing that. Um, I have a book coming out in, in November. I'm so excited about that. Um, might start my own little podcast. Uh, we'll see how that goes. I'm looking to doing like production and stuff. So I am just deeply, deeply, deeply motivated and using every tool possible to a sort of what I call upset the setup, which is like changing the story of how did like changing the story and the common understanding of how do we inherit the society that we have and how does the society have so much inequities? And it's letting everyone see that it's not an issue of individual people being bad, which they may or may not be. It's about systems being bad and how do you hold the systems accountable that we're all a part of by consenting to be part of this government. Um, so, I, and, I, and I tell this to people all the time, people are like, oh my gosh, you lost. And I was like, well, I lost a race. Um, I didn't lose. I'm, I feel like I won in, in, in many ways. And part of it is I think for folks listening, it's important, particularly when you think of public service, to be really committed to doing something versus being something. Like be committed to the verb versus the noun. Because you're committed to the noun. When the noun is done, you're done. But when you're committed to the verb, you find whatever noun is needed to accomplish the verb. So now I get to advise the governor. Now I get to work with mayors nationwide. Now I get to do film and TV stuff. Now I get to write books. Now I get to talk. Like that's in all about the same issues that I care about, which is how do we create a greater opportunity structure for everyone? And how do we make sure just the government works for everyone? Right. Like, I think that's just as in simple form. Um, so super long answer. So what's next is more of the same in, in, in different fields, in different ways, but always being a loud voice um, for equity, for inclusion and for opportunity broadly shared. No, that's, that's so great. And I think. I, I, I think that's just a, a fantastic lesson, especially for anyone who's interested in policy or politics. I think there's kind of like this idea that unless you're in like a, a seat that has, you know, unless you have your name on the office door and like you're like you got the podium yourself, then you're not going to be able to to make this big difference. Um, but I, uh, that's so good to hear and really inspiring. And I'm super excited. Um, and you kind of already mentioned something that you, you know, would let people know. And I think that goes off of that advice. But for kind of like our, our big question on policy wise is, you know, talking to to young to young people, um, as well as policy professionals. And so 
if you were going to give like one piece of advice, uh, like first to young people and then piece of advice for policy professionals, what, what would that be? Um, yeah, my biggest piece of advice would be just do. We spend so much time thinking and waiting. It, if you'll ever be ready, what you're trying to do is not big enough. You should always be looking to go a little bit above your grasp. So you'll never be ready. You always be prepared, but you'll never be totally ready. And you should always have some fear, but do it anyway, right? Like the feelings of insecurity, of fear, of, of what if it doesn't work, those are never going to go away. <laughs> so you just have to work through them, A. B, be deeply committed to a set of values and principles. So no matter where you are and what you do, you know who you are, what you stand for, what you care about. And C, I would always say, again, particularly for those who aspire to be in leadership, who aspire to, to be in front, who aspire to be in politics, be committed to doing something, not being something. And I, and I know I get it. The, the Being something is the path of least resistance. Because once you're in, to stay in, all you have to do is not piss people off. Like, it's not that hard. Like, once you're elected, to get reelected, it's not incredibly difficult if you just do nothing, right? If you just show up, make people feel good, don't ruffle any feathers, don't try to change, like, don't change anything, which is weird because you run on changing things. But once you're in, like, no one wants to change anything, you'll be fine. But if you're committed to doing something, you're going to piss people off. There's going to be conflict. There's going to be tension. It's going to be uncomfortable and scary and fatigue. You might win. You might lose. But you'll always do. And you'll never, ever want for work. And I think the world will only change if people deeply committed to doing versus being. Those are very wise words. Thank you so much for joining us. At, I, can't, I can't close any better than you just did. Um, I, I'm going to take those words to heart. And just very appreciative of your time and for joining us here on Policy Wise. I uh, look forward to talking to you again in the future, hopefully. If I can be helpful to anything, um, please let me know. And thank you for this morning therapy session. Uh, I appreciate it. <laughs> thank you. No, All no, right. really. You know you got thank you so much. Yeah. And Michael, if I, because I, I copied your Twitter handle, I don't know if it'll pace, but if I don't, just feel free to add me and I'll fix it because I'm, I'm really using that. So thank you. I will email you right now with my Twitter app in case it doesn't matter. <laughs> All, right. <laughs> All right. Great meeting you. <laughs> Thank, Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for joining us on another episode of Policy Wise. We are your hosts, Demetria. And Michael. Michael and I would love to hear from you. What topics would you like to hear about and who would you like to hear from? Check the episode description for a link to our survey. Thanks. PolicyWise is a production of Youth Leadership Institute in partnership with California Forward and their Young Leaders Advisory Council. Youth Leadership Institute makes sure young people are at the decision-making tables across California. And California Forward leads a statewide movement, bringing people together across communities, regions, and interests to improve government and ensure that the economy works for everyone. Jarrett Ramones produced this episode. Social media graphics created by Abby Pugh. And the music was sourced from artlist.io. If you want to find more great youth content, check out YLI.org and be sure to subscribe to PolicyWise on iTunes and Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a review. It really helps. To discuss this episode, engage with us on Instagram, Twitter and Facebook at PolicyWisePod and hashtag your discussions with hashtag PolicyWise. See you next time for more youth voice and policy discussion here on PolicyWise.